How many of you saw the, uh, the full moon this past week? Anybody looking out their window? What? More than I thought. That's really great. Uh, it was beautiful, wasn't it? It really was. It was bigger than normal, so I thought, well, it was first coming up, so it was a little bigger than, you could see the craters, and you could see the contrast of the light and the dark uh, on, the, on the surface of the moon, and you could do it all without a telescope. I think it was just, I think it was fascinating. I was actually on the way home uh, from the gym, and I had to pull over, because I, I wanted to look at it. It was so gorgeous, but I think that kind of thing happens all the time, doesn't it? When we're captured by uh, the beauty of nature, uh, it could be the moon or the stars, it could be a sunset or maybe a, a picturesque mountain scene, something like that, a beautiful flower garden or the beach. You have your, I'm sure you have your favorites, but uh, I think everybody's got something they really do appreciate. For the Christian, uh, maybe for others as well, uh, when we stop for a moment and really think about it and appreciate it, we recall that these things, all of these things, are the work of God, the creator, the master artist, right? The psalmist wrote in verse 1 of Psalm 19, the heavens proclaim the glory of God, the skies display his craftsmanship. And I think it's more than just the heavens that remind us of God's creativity as we read in other psalms. In fact, I would like to remind you this morning that as much as the natural world attests to God's excellent workmanship, there is something much more valuable we can give credit only to God for creating. Do you know what that is? Who said it? You get the gold star this week. Nancy, could you give your gold star? <laughs> yes, you. Well, you and me and everybody else. People are the best thing that God has made. In fact, the Bible tells us we are fearfully and wonderfully made. That means that there is something, you're going to hear repeats all morning, uh, there's something intricate and special and meaningful about each and every one of us. Do you believe that? No, I'll convince you by the time I'm done. Now, don't get too worried uh, introverts, you could do this, but I'm going to ask all of us to turn to our neighbors and tell them, you are God's masterpiece. Just do it real quick. It'll only take a second. Are you ready? You are God's masterpiece. Go ahead. Yeah, you know what? There's not one of you that is not smiling at the moment, just so you know. You are God's masterpiece. How do I know that that's true? I mean, we said it to Jordan as well. How do we know that that's true? Well, because God said it. And as we considered last week, God is the one who tells us who we are. We are blessed along with so many other things, and we are God's masterpieces. Uh, last Sunday, and again this morning, Pastor Nancy made reference uh, to Jeremiah and Psalm 139, more specifically last week, uh, but uh, verse 13 of Psalm 139 says, You made all the delicate inner parts of my body and knit me together in my mother's womb. And following that, it says this, Thank you for making me so wonderfully complex. Your workmanship is marvelous. 
how well I know it. And if we jump around in the beginning of Genesis, we can read in multiple places just how special we have been created. We have been created so special that we've been created in God's image. We are indeed God's masterpieces. But, there's always one of those, something went wrong with us almost from the start. Humankind, God's best work of art, was originally given a home in a beautiful garden in the middle of the rest of his creation and was given some instructions. You can have everything you need and want, just don't eat from that one tree. And there were consequences if they disobeyed, severe ones. Unfortunately, sin did its work, as you know. In Genesis 1 and 2, we hear words of creation and artistic beauty. And in Genesis 3, when we get to this part of the story, we hear words of condemnation. God rattled off the list. This is what happened when Adam and Eve disobeyed. They felt shame. They hid from God. They were afraid. They were punished. Uh, God said there will be intense pain and suffering. The ground will be cursed. They will struggle. They will have to work very hard. And all of these things will happen until the day they die. Now, I hate to spill the coffee on the masterpiece, but you and I inherited all of those things. You and I are as much sinners as Adam and Eve. It's part of our story. It's part of who we are. We were created as masterpieces, but we no longer reflect it. We are also a mess. It's part of our faith. We all know that life isn't always a stroll, a nice relaxing stroll in the garden, and it's to our own uh, fault. It's our own doing. So I also want you to do this this morning. Turn to the very same person or people you did before and tell them lovingly, you are a mess. Go ahead. <laughs> hear some of you emphatically saying, you are a mess. That's great. Uh, now you're ready to hear Ephesians 2 again. Listen carefully. Once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins. You used to live in sin just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers of the unseen world, he is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. All of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. By our very nature, we were subject to God's anger, just like everyone else. Do you feel better? Neither do I. These are the long-lasting effects of sin. It is our very nature. 
In these first three verses, Paul is making the point that we are hopeless and helpless, but for one thing. Things used to be that way. And it doesn't have to be that way now. We don't have to stop at verse 3 of Ephesians 2, thank God. The next two words we read, beginning in verse 4, make an eternal difference. And they are critical to understanding who we are. Paul writes these words, but God. I told you you were a mess, and you told each other you were a mess. But God. And then he launches into how we can reclaim the title of God's masterpieces. Even though we are a mess by nature, God made us even more beautiful than we are at his initial creation. But it's not anything by our doing. But God is so rich in mercy and he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. The only reason we're not stuck as a mess and in our mess is because of what God has done specifically in the person and work of Jesus. And it must have been very clear to Paul. He shared it many times in his other epistles and I guess that's why it's in parentheses in some translations. But there is nothing you have done and nothing you can do to get yourself back to masterpiece status. Nothing you can say, nothing you can do. You can be a saint, you could even be perfect your entire life. But that's not going to increase your value as a great work. Of God. As the saying goes, there's nothing you can do to make God love you more, and nothing you can do to make him love you less. And that's good news, right? Nothing can separate you from who God has created you to be in Christ Jesus. And that's a paraphrase of Romans 8:38. Your incredible value and worth are not given except by the hand of God through Christ and through his sacrifice. Remember this when you come forward today to receive. You and I can screw up life just like Adam and Eve, but that does not define you. It is only by God's grace that you are saved. You are God's masterpiece, not your own. Now, it sounds like a funny thing to say, and it'll get a little funnier when I say this, but a painting doesn't paint itself, does it? A sculpture does not sculpt itself, and you did not create yourself, nor can you take away from the master artist's concept of you. Nothing other than being united with Christ is what makes you incredibly and eternally valuable. The command we've been given and sometimes the struggle we have is living into that reality. That is also part of our faith. You, by grace alone, 
by Christ alone, have become God's masterpiece. Verse 10 says, For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus. So we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. Forget the old creation, the Adam and Eve in us. Now we are a new creation in Jesus Christ. This verse emphasizes our identity in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. How many of you know the name Greg Laurie by chance? The founder of Harvest International. That's, what is the name of the movie about? Where am I? Where is my family? Here they are. I forget what the movie is. It's starting, the starting of a church, and uh, it was also the story of how Greg Laurie got his start in uh, being in charge of Harvest International. But he writes specifically about this verse. I want to read it to you. He says, I realize that you might not feel like a masterpiece today. You may be feeling like something far less than this. Perhaps your body is aging and you're struggling even to do things you once did without a second thought. Or you may be sensing your moral and relational failures. Or you might be struggling at work or you name it. How is it possible that you are a masterpiece. My answer is that your status as a masterpiece is true not because of how healthy you are, how accomplished you are, or how moral you are. You are a masterpiece because of what God has done in your life by his grace. You have been newly and wonderfully created through Christ so that you might live in relationship with God and for his glory, is what Pastor Nancy was talking about. So what shall we do about this? How do we live in relationship with him and for his glory? I'm going to suggest to you just one thing this morning. I want you simply to be God's poem, like a work of art. Here's what I mean. The word translated masterpiece in the text from Ephesians comes from the Greek word poema, and when that's transliterated, it's where we get our English word for poem. Now, it's not an exact translation, that's not exactly what it means, but I think that helps us understand how we can live into being God's workmanship or his masterpiece. I want you to listen to this poem first. I'm sure many of you have heard it before, but it's certainly worth repeating today. It's titled The Touch of the Master's Hand by Myra Brooks Welch, and you've probably heard it, some of you have heard it in song before as well. Here's how it goes. "'Twas battered and scarred, and the auctioneer thought it hardly worth his while to waste his time on the old violin, but he held it up with a smile. What'll I bid, good people, he cried. Who starts the bidding for me? One dollar, one dollar, do I hear two? Two dollars, who makes it three? Three dollars once, three dollars twice, 
going for three, but no. From the back, from the room far back, a gray-bearded man came forward and picked up the bow. Then wiping the dust from the old violin and tightening up the strings, he played a melody pure and sweet, as sweet as the angel sings. The music ceased and the auctioneer, with a voice that was quiet and low, said, what now am I bid for this old violin, as he held it aloft with its bow? One thousand, one thousand, do I hear two? Two thousand, who makes it three? Three thousand once, three thousand twice, going and gone, said he. The audience cheered, but some of them cried, we just don't understand. What changed its worth? Swift came the reply, the touch of the master's hand. And many a man with life out of tune, all battered and bruised with sin, is auctioned cheap to a thoughtless crowd, much like that old violin. A mess of pottage, a glass of wine, a game, and he travels on. He is going once, he is going twice, he is going and almost gone. But the master comes, and the foolish crowd never can quite understand the worth of a soul and the change that is wrought by the touch of the master's hand. You are God's poem. Once again, Greg Laurie says, Jesus looks at you and doesn't see you just for what you are. He sees you for what you can become. We see a lump of clay. God sees a beautiful vase. We see a black canvas. God sees a finished painting. We see a lump of coal. God sees a refined diamond. We see problems. God sees solutions. We see failures. God sees potential success. We see a Jacob. God sees an Israel. We see a Simon. God sees an Apostle Peter. What does God see in you? Remember, it's not based in what you have done or what you've not done, nor what you have said or not said, nor in what someone else sees or doesn't see in you. None of that counts. Through what we celebrate at the table today, you are reminded of what God sees about you, redeemed, restored, highly valued, and forgiven through none other than Jesus Christ. God sees a perfected picture of who he has created you to be and do. He sees you as you are and who you will become until the day you leave this earth. He sees you as his master.